This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3 FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with Kate Rosmanith. Kate is an author, academic and essayist and she joined me in the studio to talk about her new book, Small Wrongs, How We Really Say Sorry in Love, Life and Law. Kate and I explored how we define remorse and how we might measure or judge remorse, particularly in the courtroom. And you are tuned to Uncommon Sense on 3RRFM with Amy Mullins. I have the absolute pleasure of having Kate Ross-Manneth join me in the studio to talk about her book, Small Wrongs, How We Really Say Sorry in Love, Life and Law. It's out through Hardy Grant. Kate is an author, essayist and academic, and she lectures and conducts research at Macquarie University in Sydney. So she's made the trip down to talk about this book and I welcome her now. Hi there, Kate. Hi, Amy. Thank you so much for coming in. Yeah, it's such a pleasure to be here. It's great to have you and to be able to talk about a topic that I guess I hadn't really thought about in such great depth. But once I looked at this book, I thought, what a brilliant idea. And it certainly is something that needs further investigation. And that is the topic of remorse and how one can be remorseful, whether one can tell that someone is showing true remorse for an action that they may have committed, whether it's a crime or something less serious. So, Kate, first of all, uh, let's talk about this book and what it is, because your background is as an academic and you certainly have conducted research into a range of areas from the perspective of an anthropologist and also someone who studies performance. Could you talk a bit about that lens through which you're working with this book? Absolutely. So I, I have a background in a discipline called performance studies, which is a marriage between theatre and anthropology and not only looks at the ways in which, um, you know, performance operates in in our common understandings of performance, such as theatre, dance, opera, but also um, a sort of a smaller P performance. So looking at uh, funerals, weddings, rituals, ceremonial displays of mourning, um, the ways in which we perform ourselves in everyday life. Um, So... Uh, yeah, of course, you know, for about 500 years, the metaphor of theatre has been used to describe or the, the trial courts. Um, it's a common, it's really common language that we, we associate with courtrooms. And if you go into a courtroom, you, a, a lay person just looks around and thinks, you know, starts thinking in kind of really theatrical metaphors. Um, so, you know, you, and yet, of course, the participants caught up in the system are not thinking that way or rarely thinking in those terms at all. Um, what's also interesting, of course, is that, you know, courtrooms are, it, we expect truth telling. We expect, you know, to get down to the bottom of what really happened or who someone really is or um, how people might tell the truth. And yet, at the same time, courtrooms demand enactments from people. So there's a sort of a nice, I don't know, there's some kind of paradox there, I think. So I, I'd i started turning up to courtrooms and I, I started observing um, the ways in which remorse worked in these spaces. Um, I've 
been long interested in the idea of of emotion and and the puzzle of bodies and emotion like how we furnish ourselves with feeling and how others recognize it on us so i yeah designed this study um an ethnographic study where i'd go and i um, would sit in case after case observing the way that people comport themselves in court and then um and you know what judges how judges assess things and then talk to them so I would you know I was hanging out with judges and magistrates asking them how they assess whether or not someone's really sorry um hung out with criminal lawyers um forensic physicians caseworkers guys on parole offenders victims um parole members of the of the New South Wales State Parole Authority what a lot of um, people don't realise, I think, is that um, remorse is a is a mitigating factor in the justice system. So judges are legally obliged to take a person's remorse into account when formulating that person's sentence or parole date, and yet how judges assess remorse is unclear. And so it's a really rich area of study. <laughs> yeah, it's groundbreaking, really. It's something that's quite early in its understanding, isn't it, that we are still trying to understand how a judge can assess something which is quite subjective and it's partially based on judgment. That's a skill, really, isn't it, that a judge has developed over a number of years is to be able to weigh up evidence to judge someone's demeanour and character and to look at the subtext and to see what's really going on underneath and not just take things at face value. I think that's what we hope. I mean, I think yeah. that's our that's our great that's hope. That's our perception. Yeah. <laughs> that's our great hope of what is happening, you know, mm. that judges have got to assess crimes in relation to the law. They've also got to sit opposite people and decide who they are and what to do with them. I think it's a I think it's a hard job. The judges I spoke with were uh, I don't know they they were they were in research terms what gets called self-selecting, which means that they were the sorts of judges who opted to talk to a researcher such as myself and were prepared to reflect on their own working practice and their own mm. biases and the way they come to decisions and the way they assess remorse. And so I was just so grateful that those judges, um, you know, did agree to speak with me and, I, yeah, it was a real honour to sort of have that access. Yeah, it's quite a rare opportunity, isn't it? Would you say that they had a greater level of self-awareness or... Would they be looking in on themselves sometimes, thinking, how am I assessing this person? Do they have a certain level of personal removal from their own process or situation to the point where they think it's as objective as it could be? I think so. I mean, look, a number of them said that, in fact, just through the process of having the conversation with me and through our interviews, they came to new understandings of the ways they were even assessing remorse themselves. So, which is, I think, what we need to get to is a kind of a this reflexivity of where one asks oneself, okay, well, how am I actually assessing this thing? You know, judges, they need evidence. Like, they can't just, uh, a kind of a defence counsel can't just stand up and say, Your Honour, my client is very remorseful. Mm. And the judge look at the, at the person in the dock and go, yeah, I accept that or not, nah, that doesn't sound right to me. So judges require evidence and I asked judges what, you know, what well, what counts as evidence of remorse mm. and, of course, it 
is absolutely a case-by-case basis. So you've got, you know, sometimes an early guilty plea might count as evidence, um, but that depends on the strength of the Crown case. So if someone walks into a police station and confesses and and it's a cold case, police don't have any leads, that may be seen as evidence of remorse, whereas if the case is, um, you know, they've got overwhelming amount of evidence pointing, you know, that would help with a prosecution and someone pleads guilty, that's sort of less compelling evidence of, Mm. of, of, of remorse. In cases of fraud, there might be financial reparation. There might be letters to the victim, letters to the court. Psychologists might write pre-sentence reports. So an offender might sit with a psychologist and a psychologist might assess them and decide that this person is remorseful. Except the judges I spoke with were really reluctant to accept that as a form of evidence, especially if the Defence Council paid for that psychology report a judge kind of think well sometimes you know that those psych reports that based on a one-off encounter with a psych Mm. might might kind of give us nothing other than I don't know just what the psychologist thinks is going on rather than are we really getting to the bottom of anything I asked judges whether they took demeanor into account and there were a number of them were quite incensed that I asked that (laughs) and sort of suggested, no, no, we don't, you know, we can't read anything on people's body language. Don't be ridiculous, you know. And and, uh, especially when I was sometimes sitting there and watching the offender in the dock and I was wondering what was going on inside that offender and what Mm. whether there's this internal feeling called remorse that's happening and whether the judge could feel it or what, what was going on. But judges would then sometimes in the next breath do talk about reading visual clues of people. And so that sounded to me like a little knotty. Judges were often impressed when people actually got into a witness box and spoke compellingly about their own remorse. Let's talk about that because a lot of defenders don't get up in the witness box and are advised not to because they're not often required to go up and testify and go under cross-examination. And so there are many times where uh, you only have their body language What do judges do then when all they've got in terms of a defendant's primary evidence or what Mm. they're providing to Mm. the judge is whatever their counsel says or whatever a a prison officer uh, who might have observed the prisoner in jail or a psychologist? I mean, what happens when that's really the only evidence you've got is a second-hand account? Then it's not given as much weight that that's that's the the kind of the long and the short of it really Mm. and of course you know what's interesting at this stage is that these are offenders not defendants because they've they've either pleaded guilty or they've been found guilty um so you know it's a whole other bucket of worms when you know someone has um pleaded not guilty and but been found guilty by a jury or something Mm. and then they want to try to argue that they're remorseful and that that is tricky because, you know, well, if you were remorseful, you would have admitted Pleaded that you'd guilty. done it. Yeah. yeah. In, anyway, look, in, ca- in cases of manslaughter, murder, that that's a, then a different issue again because sometimes mm. people plead guilty to manslaughter but not to murder. So they say, yes, I killed the person, but in fact it was – there was a case I write about in the book where a woman ran over a young man with her car. She pleaded guilty to manslaughter but was found guilty of murder. And so remorse worked in a kind of interesting way there. And when I say remorse, I mean the way the judge decided that, yes, she was remorseful. But mm-hmm. the whole other issue about hearing from the horse's mouth, which is what how judge 
one judge talked about it, like, it, you know, you want to hear it from the horse's mouth, is that in the local courts where magistrates are sometimes hearing 100 matters a day or something, there just isn't time. You just can't have everybody get up and, and give some kind of remorse statement because it just, the process as it is, is just so fast and magistrates have got to get through... Yeah, so much. The workload's huge. Um, and I think magistrates just get really quite annoyed if, if there's this one after, you know, another low-range prescribed concentration of alcohol, you know, gets up and says, oh, I'm so, <laughs> I'm, yeah, I'm so sorry. And there are problems there as well. Judges only have to take evidence remorse into account if evidence is presented. And if a judge then deems that this evidence has shown a compelling kind of presence of remorse if that makes sense Mm so you know there are cases where remorse it doesn't even make an appearance there isn't really a sort of a the defense counsel don't even really try to really present much evidence around it anyway let's talk about remorse in more detail because you write that the etymology of remorse means to bite again referring to the bite it holds on the conscience and on the spirit and that's a really deep internal existential struggle that someone would be feeling if they were feeling true remorse. To you, what does remorse mean? Is that what it means to you, what the the etymological meaning Mm. of it is? Or did you think when you were observing these cases and the sentencing hearings, something else? I kept asking judges, you know, is it a feeling like... Is it an emotion I was asking? So what, because what is remorse is one mm. of the things I ask judges. And they they wouldn't necessarily say it's an emotion, but they definitely all agreed it at least started as an internal feeling and that it had to be expressed. And, you know, there had to be some kind of outward expressing of it. So we were quickly in that land of interiority, exteriority. There's a fantastic law scholar in Canada who makes a distinction between apology and remorse and says that while apology refers to the anguish that someone feels for having violated the norms of a moral community, a demonstration of remorse expresses that anguish. It's 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 a kind of suffering made visible. It's an outward yearning for atonement. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I thought that was an interesting distinction. Mm. It is particularly given your lens, which is performance, mm. seems like that would lend itself better to someone who has a more exterior world or can express themselves more visibly than someone who may be feeling remorse and not be able to express it in a way that is socially identifiable. How many ways are there to express remorse? One of the things that that some of the judges talk to me, first of all, they, sometimes they would talk about spontaneous displays of emotion in the witness box or something. And, you know, we can kind of feel cynical about that. But like when you're in the courtroom as an observer and you're observing that, gosh, it's compelling. Like, it's so overwhelming. And, you know, like I watched a young man who I thought was this kind of petulant, slightly brattish kind of person. And he'd spent seven years in prison for killing three friends and seriously injuring a fourth in a car accident. So he was on drugs and he he was living in this country town and on the night of his 21st birthday, he crashed his car into a pole, speeding. It was an accident, obviously. 
and three friends in the car were killed and he seriously injured a fourth person. And so he spent seven years in jail for manslaughter and then he, he was on parole but he was mucking up on his parole and the parole authority brought him back into the into the courtroom to basically trying to, you know, have a chat to him to go, wait, mate, you know, do we need to put you back in prison or what's going on here? And this guy turns up, he's 27, and he just looks really petulant and stroppy. And then he gets into the witness box and starts talking about the event. And you realise he's totally grief-stricken, like this guy is weeping. He's just saying, I've killed three friends, I've killed three mates, you know, I've got to live with this for the rest of my life. I was just like, oh my God. So, you know, that was... A moment where I went, okay, so when judges had been talking to me about encountering a spontaneous display of emotion, mm. um, that I'm seeing it and that's what that looks like and, gosh, it's compelling. And, you know, judges cry. So judges, elderly judges were crying to me during interviews, recounting to me having encountered remorse um, expressions such as that. Another, you know, way in which one can express remorse, I think, is sort of what one does from the moment of the offence. So it's what I kept referring to as a remorse dramaturgy. It's like, you know, in the case of this woman who killed this young man with her car, it they, it happened, she struck him, and then she tried to lift the car off him. She was going hysterical. She was, you know, pulling her hair out by the side of the road, screaming and crying, trying to lift the car off him. And, and then subsequently the series of events after that as well. And the judge... I spoke with in that case really found that quite compelling that the remorse was immediate he said and he could see it from the moment after the offence you've then got these other instances where like I talked to this guy who'd uh, been convicted of heroin sub- possession and supply uh, but that was 30 years ago that that case but I was interviewing him now when he's in his 60s and he talked about how it took a long time for him to really feel remorse for selling heroin he said one of the most profound things which was that you know remorse is an old person's game and he just said the time it takes to really align your individual behavior and individual acts with a larger consciousness or larger you know societal Mm. consciousness is really slow I don't know, I thought that was really interesting. The philosopher Raymond Gator says that remorse is a disciplined remembrance of the moral significance of what we did. And I think it really takes discipline to, um, you know, to reconcile who you think you are with what you've done. Mm. And that example you bring up of David, the heroin seller and user, was it the policeman that he told, he said, oh, well, if I wasn't selling it, someone else would, and then I'd buy it from them. So, you know, how are my actions really affecting heroin use if all I'm doing is fulfilling a need that someone else is just going to jump in and do when I'm not here to do it or I've run out? That's a great example of the fact that at the time, he didn't at all identify his situation with the bigger picture of selling drugs and how that has a bigger impact on society and how potentially someone who bought the heroin may have died or, you know, had greater impacts on their family life than he is aware of and the moral implications of, of that. One of the beautiful parts about your book is that you start talking about David and his reflection upon, you know, needing that distance. And then at the end, Judge Solomon and you actually encountering that judge and telling him that he made such a difference to David's life. Could you talk about that response that the judge had? Gosh, that felt 
like a great moment. Yeah. Like I, you know, because I'd done that interview with that guy, David, and then David had said, you know, it was this guy was called Judge Solomon. And I was like, okay, okay. And then, you know, down the track, I found myself interviewing Judge Solomon and who was just such a lovely judge. And, uh, and I just thought, oh, bugger it, I'm going to say something. And I said, oh, you know, actually 30 years ago, this guy came before you. And I told um, the judge the story of, yeah, of, of David and what, how Judge Solomon had kind of changed David's life really because David had said to me, listen, if you see him, t- send him my regards, tell him it turned out okay, tell him I stayed off. I stayed off the heroin, which he did. And David, you know, went on to lead a, I don't know, just a, a it, well, he went on to live. I mm. mean, he really was not going to live, I think, if he'd continued in the life he was living. And so, he had his family back as well. Mm, yeah, he had he had reconciled with his wife, he had his daughter. I mean, uh, yeah, because quite a great... It was a very moving and heartening story. Yeah, so I told Judge all of that. He was so happy. He just was like, oh, he said it's great to get one right. And I think he even, I didn't put it in a book because it, it sounded great in person, but it just on the page, it would have looked a bit naff, but he said it's good to save a soul. And he was being slightly facetious, mm. but not. And mm. I, I was, it was really beautiful. And I thought, oh, and of course like remorse in the, in the courts, it's a theological hangover. So it was used to kind of save people's souls. So when we were executing people, someone stands at the gallows, they express remorse, and then we execute them. And then, you know, everyone's satisfied that their soul has gone to heaven. It keeps the moral and social order. So, re- mm. um, so redemption sort of saves their souls. And no one ever said it, but soul saving continued to sometimes preoccupy the common law I think and you know you don't want to think about it in that way but there is that real I don't know there's still such a we 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 really hang on to this hope of redemption or at the very least transformation we want rehabilitation change is the crux of the matter you know yeah well we're looking at the moment particularly in Victoria our prison populations are growing and we need to build more prisons to actually fit the population Mm. that is being sentenced and part of that is retribution part of that is deterrence but you in the book talk about a range of training courses and programs that prisoners or people who are detained undertake in order to understand their actions and a part of that is to think about the victim and what they've done to the victim and to express empathy or have um, an understanding of what empathy might mean if they weren't feeling empathy for the victim. Yeah. Yeah, so there's a kind of what I was referring to as a kind of a remorse-producing ingredient or something in some of these um, therapeutic programs. I mean, I I spoke to a guy who'd spent 15 months in Long Bay Jail and he said that when he was... And this guy was quite educated and, you know, a middle-aged guy and he said that he ended up writing this pamphlet in prison called um, How to Feel Genuine Remorse that he circulated to the um, his fellow inmates, giving them a kind of a list of how to be truly remorseful. And... I mean, it was, I mean, it's the kind of thing you would tell a child, you know, think about what you've done, you know, think about your actions, think about how even though you're feeling angry and that you might have also been, you know, a, a victim in some way, think about though how your actions have impacted, you know, so there was this kind of little list thing that he'd circulated to, to his fellow inmates. As we know, the, the prison population, it's just, you know, full of just profound social disadvantage, cultural disadvantage. I don't know, like a judge said to me 
um, it was a retired judge, I should say, he said to me, you know what, we could release 90% of the people in prisons and society wouldn't look any different. So he felt there was only about 10% of the prison population that were a serious danger to society. I'm not an expert in questions around justice reinvestment programs, but you really want to get behind that kind of thing, I think. Yeah. Um, mm. And it does bring up issues that we've seen, like, I think in that um, that chapter when you're sitting with the parole board, you're quite struck by how fast it moves, how little kind of debate there is, and also how little remorse is playing in that particular situation. Mm. Yes. So I sat in on private meetings of the New South Wales State Parole Authority and this would have been through 2012, I think, 2011, 2012, 2013. So I can't comment on the the way the practices are working now, but Mm. at that time. So the parole board was making 10,000 decisions a year. In a three-hour meeting, they would make um, decisions on 70 matters, the parole of or not parole of 70 people. Um, and each matter was given about three minutes of discussion. And it was made possible because of all the paperwork they'd been given beforehand. And then they'd sort of made decisions that they came together and then compared mm. each other's decisions and made an ultimate decision about each person. Yeah, remorse didn't play much of a role at all. And, you know, a parole board member said to me, look, we're, we're just an administrative body. It's, a, it, it's quite bureaucratic. It's a different sort of thing to a judge's sentencing so you know I was aware of that and yet remorse like in our minds in in our in the community's mind we would think remorse would be really important like we'd go come on where's your remorse we need the moment a law scholar has pointed out that you know it's that moment with remorse where someone the offender Um, separates herself from the act and joins the moral community in condemning the act. Mm. And so as the moral community, we want that moment because we want the offender to be reintegrated because we want them to join us in condemning the act that, that has happened, that they've that, that offender is, has, has perpetrated. So, you know, we, we, we hunger for it. There's a really uncomfortable relationship between remorse and rehabilitation. So, you know, I can rehabilitate myself and not feel remorse and I can be remorseful and not rehabilitate myself. And, you know, and that is just very possible. So I, you know, punch someone in the head, I break my wrist, that I won't do that again because I broke my wrist, but I'm not remorseful. <laughs> and we're, you know, serial um, drug addicts, um, alcohol addicts mm. um, might come before the courts regularly and each time they've sobered up and they're just so remorseful, so remorseful, so remorseful. And, and you know, I did speak to a judge who said they really did in those moments go feel this person is so sorry, like they're so remorseful mm. and yet they're going to come back and do it again. Because mm. they're presumably in a different state of mind once they aren't engaging in the substance or the activity that is part of the addiction at that point. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. In terms of um, the question of rehabilitation and what you were just asking earlier about at what point can we say someone's changed, this ended up becoming quite a massive kind of organising principle for the book for me, which had to do with time, event, transformation, change. Mm -hmm. So, you know... If if the idea is that we want transformation, the question, of course, then is what does observable change look like and how can you tell someone's changed their ways? How can you ever be sure? Like how many yeah. 
moments of not doing what you might have otherwise done have to accrue to form an identifiable matrix of transformation. And so that question about time and the that the remorse depends on time for its existence, questions of time change event became this massive organising structure and then also helped inform the way I, I ended up going about writing the book, which is a hybrid memoir. It's not an academic book. It's, no. not, it's not even written as a piece of investigative reportage or journalism or anything. It's, it's a creative nonfiction book and it's this hybrid memoir. There's a lot of you in it, not just you as the observer of these courtroom situations, but you're weaving your own life and particularly your relationship with your father as well as your own family, your daughter and your husband. Exactly. So what I noticed is that, you know, the courts and what happens in the courts, it's all about event, right? That's what crime is, right? It's event. Something happens. Someone does something to someone else. Someone does something. There's an agent. Mm -hmm. There's cause and effect And then there's story. There's a beginning, middle and end. We get narrative arc in the courts all the time. That's the business of the the lawyers. That's what they need to do. They they present story. Judges read story. This is an account. We've got the police facts sheet. You know, this is what happened in in this order of events, right? Mm -hmm. Mostly, though, we live our lives in background. So we live our lives in the unmarked, the uneventful, the ordinary, the common the everyday, the quotidian, our domestic lives. We get up, we go to work, we come home, we have our relationships. And yet our ideas and concepts of remorse emerge in that background space in really unacknowledged ways. And then we use those concepts to judge people who come through the system. So what I wanted to do in the book was to animate that background, which is hard to do when it's not narratively driven. Mm. So I made a technical and creative decision to write about dimensions of my life that read as sections of memoir but are not memoir in the usual sense of the way memoir is written. Memoir is usually written because something big has happened to someone and that person's now going to write about that thing. I was writing about the quotidian. So I wrote about things that I knew that a lot of people would experience a lot. So I wrote about a kind of a, uh, a, a heartbreaking relationship with a parent. So I had had for a lot of my life quite a difficult relationship with my father. No big thing had happened between us, but just he was quite a distant, angry man for a lot of the mm. time, then changed very late in life. I wrote about um, this really difficult period in my marriage with my husband. Again, nothing big happened, no big event, you know, just, wow, we found ourselves after the birth of our baby in a kind of like a state of trying to work out how to make a marriage work. Yeah. Um, well, your relationship transforms, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah. Massively. Yeah. And you have different identities. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. And then, of course, with and so the, the event that happens in the, is, you know, the birth of the child is this kind of quite extraordinary event for, I mean, it's so, someone once said to me, it's like throwing a grenade into a marriage. Like it's, 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 extra, I mean, brilliant, amazing, you know, mm. you're, you're so delighted this baby's arrived and it's so 
you nothing can prepare you for it. Um, so I write about postnatal depression as well, which is incredibly common experience. So these sorts of threads that run through and the way that remorse can stretches and breathes in interesting ways in those background spaces, mm-hmm. but that ultimately the ways in which that that. I don't know, our, we explore that in our interior lives, questions around moral agency, remorse, what it means to be a good child, what it means to raise a moral being as a parent when you've got this little kid. All those things work to formulate our unacknowledged concepts of what remorse is and how we expect to see it and then we carry that into the ways in which we view the justice system and judges do it too. Like I had an interview with a judge and I was talking to him and at one point he just sort of looked quite, I don't know, he looked away and just said, oh, I hurt someone very badly once. And I looked at him, I thought, oh my gosh, of course, you know, in thinking about the remorse you're expecting to see, you're thinking about your own remorse and and what you think remorse even is or how it's even been circulating your own private life. So that was one of the big reasons why I wanted to structure the book in that way and made that decision to have the event and background working um, interweaving through that, the book. We see throughout the book that there is something unspoken going on between you and you're trying to bring it out and to have, I guess, a really open, direct conversation and just deal with it now. Let's be pragmatic. Like, let's just fix this because I just, I'm feeling tortured by the fact that we're not the way we were and you Mm. want it to be back that way. You still love each other. It's really, you know, clear that your marriage is a really strong thing, but it's not how it was before your child came along and you just have that moment which was really poignant for me of okay we need to draw a line under this and just forgive each other accept what's happened and move on and to me then I thought about um, victims families and why remorse is so important for them because it presumably would make forgiveness easier or acceptance at least of what's happened easier if you know that the person who did it realises that what they did was wrong and then feels some kind of deep regret and torture, I guess, for having done it in the first place. Yeah, look, I spending time with a homicide victim support group was like, it, it was so profound. Oh my gosh, you know, yeah. So I went to um, Wagga Wagga, which is sort of five hours west of, um, of the coast of in New South Wales, so five hours inland, and um, uh, hung out there with the Homicide Victim Support Group meeting that was happening there. And I talked, like I asked them about remorse and I was really, like, because I was so nervous to even say perpetrator's remorse because it's like I didn't even want to use the word perpetrator because these people had lost siblings parents children to homicide and I I just wanted to go so delicately so I sort of just said remorse and I was just kind of hoping that of course or assuming they would just make the connection of course we're talking about the perpetrator's remorse Mm. and initially people were saying a lot of them said we've seen no remorse you know and people were going there was a woman whose 71 year old um, mother had been tied up by three men um, because they wanted to rob the place and the the mother was in that just left tied up and it took her 10 days to die and this woman was telling me that you know those none of those men were 
have said sorry or like shown any kind of remorse. So I, I, I've, several of them there at the meeting were just kind of almost confused when I brought mm. it up because they just hadn't encountered. They any, haven't seen remorse. No, there has been no like maybe in the trials people were pleading not guilty. So there just was never this moment where. There was the remorse moment, I guess. Yeah. Then a couple of them suddenly said to me, Kate, wait a sec, whose remorse are you talking about? Do you mean my remorse? A father said to me. He said, my adult son, you know, was stabbed to death one evening while walking home alone, like just stabbed to death by a stranger. And he said, and I was like, I feel remorse. He's telling me like, what if I'd done something differently? Maybe my son would still be alive. And I was like, he had nothing to do with the events of that death. And yet, so those people, they they came away feeling remorse even though they had nothing to do with the events of the death and that was just totally profound. I did speak with one woman called Debbie. She was fantastic. She'd gone through a restorative justice program in the prison. She met with the man who'd murdered her brother and when going into the meeting, the jail authorities said to her, what don't you want from this from this encounter? And she said, I do not want him to say sorry. So that was the thing she didn't want. And I said to her, you know, why? Why wouldn't you want that? She said, because, first of all, I wouldn't even believe it if he said it. Second of all, it minimises my brother's murder. Thirdly, if I do believe it, if I did think it was genuine, that would humanise this guy and I do not want him to be a human. So that was extraordinary. Mm. So what was she going to get out of that, out of curiosity? What What was she looking for? She wanted to go and tell him what the impact that this entire thing had had on her life and on the life of her children. So she went and she met with the guy and she sat opposite him in the prison and um, the guy had a nun sitting next to him because the guy had found God in jail and this infuriated Debbie because Debbie's Catholic and she was like, no, you can't have found God in jail. You know, there was... um, So she started just telling the guy, this is... is the effect it's had on my life, right? And she said she visibly saw the man's shoulders just collapse and him, I don't know, just shrink. And she she sensed, she goes, I felt the remorse. It was like, and it made her feel good. So it was almost like on the face of it, she's saying, no, I don't want remorse from this guy. Mm. But when it came and it came on her own terms, mm-hmm. it she found it very healing and it was a spontaneous kind of unexpected expression like a visible bodily expression yes it wasn't him coming into the meeting going listen debbie so glad you came i've yeah. got something's been weighing on me for the last 12 years i need to let tell me you, unburden I'm really myself. sorry yeah mm. exactly yeah so i think that 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 to me like hanging out with those people was just a total honour and I thought that's so complex and interesting. Like yeah. I think because a lot of us would think, oh, surely if the offender feels remorse and shows remorse, surely isn't that healing for everybody? Mm. And it just isn't it's quite no. as simple as that. Yeah, mm. and it certainly would be contextual as well based mm. on the crime that's being committed. As you say, the judges also take into account like how brutal is this type of murder, for example, yeah, so they have to take into it. It's called the objective seriousness of the offence, which would sound so strange to us lay people because we're thinking, like, if someone killed someone I loved, I'm like, they killed someone I loved. Yeah. You know, that is the the worst thing that could ever happen to any... I, I don't... I, like, don't even talk to me about where this sitting mm. on a scale of something, right? But 
what, of course, a judge has to do is go, okay, what kind of murder was it? And, you know, was it a hitman who kidnapped someone and tortured them for three months before killing them? Was it a, I mean, you know, was it a gunshot to the head from the, I mean, I can't, can't, you know, you just can't imagine that, yeah, this is the work that they do. And and it just seems for a layperson so cold, I think, um, and Mm. yet necessary necessary i suppose you know yeah. they they, necess- they have to ask those questions mm. and but for a lay person it's um who who's been affected by the crime it's sort of unbearable because you're just in agony exactly and it's highlighting that there is a very extreme end yes there's an extreme end which of course yeah. is rare and you know you wouldn't um you know so but but is there so yes. trying to sort of appreciate that there, there's this scale I want to uh, finish this conversation talking a bit about some of the other research that has been part of this experience for you. You do academic research as well, and this book is not academic. You've got two expressions of the one project project or body of work. How do you look at them and how do you see their contribution and the way that it's engaging with society? I did the the big body of research and I And always, this is around 2010, 11, yeah, 12, 12, 13. Yeah. So between two, 2010 and 2013 I did the field work in the courts and and then I started really doing a lot of writing around it. I I published a couple of um long form essays in the monthly um and that was great to get that work out there. So that then is a nut, different form again because mm. that's you know literary journalism or you know long form journalism that's a different form again. Um with the academic stuff, so yeah, you um having getting the research papers out um is a fantastic exercise. It really sharpens your thinking. You know, with academic work, there's no subtext. It's all out there. And you, you're really clear about the gap in the knowledge out there in the world. You're explaining how your research project is addressing a gap. And then you start, um, you explain your methodology, and then you start mapping out or, or analysing the data, you know, presenting the data, analysing data. And so you're really in that world. Um, it's been important because there is an absence of empirical research around um, the ways that the courts assess remorse. So for about the last 20 years or so, law scholars have seen this anomaly, recognised this anomaly that, wow, we don't, how do judges assess it? And there have been studies where they've assessed judges' judgments. Um, there hasn't really been empirical research in the sense of ethnographic research, like where you go and you kind of ask a judge and go, okay, well, I know you wrote this in your judgment, but how are you feeling about, you know, what is remorse and how do you assess and doing a kind of a different form of study. So doing an interview-based um, observation, participant observation-based study is going to yield kind of different sets of knowledges around this. So that's why I was doing that those kinds of academic, those academic research papers. Obviously, the long-form journalism stuff is a is kind of more of a it's more investigative journalism, I guess. And with the work of judges essay I wrote for the monthly, that got nominated for a Walkley Award, um, which I was delighted about because I was like, okay, great, yes, this was sort of seen as an in a piece of investigative journalism, which it was, you know, and it really in part came about because during an interview with a judge, um, I said to him, it was it was a slightly cheeky question, but at the end of the interview I said to him what haven't I asked you that I should have asked you it, what didn't I ask oh, you during, yes. yeah, during yeah, this yeah. interview which is also in this book yeah. yeah and he said how we sentence people and I was like 
what do you mean? You use intuitive synthesis. And he goes, but what does that mean? I was like, what do you mean? What does it mean? You use it. What do you mean? Doesn't it? And so then it sort of opened up this entire thing about the crazy um, sentencing legislation in New South Wales. Which so is that, crazy. It's and crazy. mathematical. And kind of weirdly math, phony science, this yeah. weird thing. So that was what, um, so that the work of judges essay in the monthly was about that. With this nonfiction book, I wanted it to really, I wanted the reader to read this thing and suddenly have a a kind of a thinking and feelingful sense of an effective sense of uh, remorse as it works in the most interior way in our lives, in the most domestic, ordinary, but also really interior way. Mm-hmm. And then how that then sits opposite the interesting and sometimes crazy ways in which remorse works in the courts and I wanted the reader to suddenly think to have that feelingful sense of like wow this thing that's so soupy we're now being asked we're asking people to then perform this thing in this courts some people who come from profound disadvantage people you know what wow this is how are we doing this and you know I don't know the problems of this, and and what what does it even mean to just be in a human relationship at all? You know, if human yeah. relationships involve moral matters, so that was a, just a different objective, I think, with this book. Mm. Yep, was to make it really relatable in the sense of here's how it's applying throughout your life without you possibly even realizing it. Yeah, and then here's the performative aspect and a way that it can or cannot be measured or judged. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Kate, it's been amazing speaking with you and I really appreciate the time you've taken to talk about this and it's Thanks, fascinating Amy. the research you've done. Yeah, it's so lovely to come in today. Thanks so much. Oh, great. Thank you. And that was my interview with Kate ross Manneth, and she is an author, an essayist, an academic uh, based at Macquarie University in Sydney. And we were talking about her new book, Small Wrongs, How We Really Say Sorry in Love, Life and Law. And really the the whole point of this book, I guess, is to explore remorse uh, in our day-to-day lives, but then also how it plays out in the legal system. And certainly it's something which uh, is only really recently being examined uh, in an academic sense and which of course Kate has made a major contribution um, through her ethnographic work of really um, observing up close uh, judges and all the other people who take part in that um, legal process and how we can really understand remorse. So if you wanted to listen back to any of that audio you can listen back on soundcloud uh, later this afternoon you can also listen back on a triple r on-demand streaming service and uh, it will be podcasted and available via our homepage as well this has been a podcast from three triple r 102.7 fm in melbourne truly independent community radio want to hear more check out our website at rrr.org.au